You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, hello, and welcome to episode 85 of Attaboy Clarence. Wonderful of you to return to the fold for this journey into the diabolical. Yes, today's theme is movies that were banned. Three movies coming your way that gave censors and studios an awful headache. And in some cases, still do. So listen on for that. I'll be joined later on by my wonderful researcher, the clever mademoiselle herself, Miss Brooke Darnell, for another of Brooke's Inside Looks. Yes, before you begin to worry, there is a brand new Canterbury heading your way, courtesy of a very good friend of this show. There'll also be a radio play, the winner of last time's competition, a dip into the question pot, and of course, some gorgeous music, beginning with Fred Astaire. And I'm putting all my eggs in one basket. been a roaming Romeo, my Juliet's have been many, but now my roaming days have gone. Too many irons in the fire is worse than not having any. I've had my share and from now on, I'm putting all my eggs in one basket. I'm betting everything I've got on you I'm giving all my love to one baby Heaven help me if my baby don't come through I've got a great big amount Saved up in my love account Honey and I've decided Love divided in two Won't do So I Putting all my eggs in one basket I'm betting everything I've got on you Everything I've got I bet on you Everything I've got Every single thing I've got I 
bet on you. And that was Fred Astaire with I'm Putting All My Eggs in One Basket. Lovely, lovely stuff. Maybe you have a question. Well, throw it into the question pot. Strangely, there is no next line. Well, maybe I'll read your question out on the show, or maybe not. Now, here's someone with a handbell. A dip into the question pot, then. The first one is from Geraldine Levy-Hayes, who writes... Hi, Adam. Some time ago in one of your podcasts, you talked about the film Daytime Wife. (laughs) I certainly did. I'd already watched this weird Donald Trump fantasy of a film. During your podcast, you shocked me by revealing that Linda Darnell, who played the wife, was 15 when she made the film. (laughs) This reminded me of another film I'd seen, though not all the way through, starring Ronald Coleman and Loretta Young. The film is The Devil to Pay. I thought at the time it was strange that Ronald Coleman should be appearing in a film looking so youthful next to a love interest played by Loretta Young. I discovered the film was made in 1930. Ronald Coleman was 39 and Loretta Young was a 17-year-old teenager. Adam, what was going on in Hollywood at the time? Who was procuring these teenage girls? This is very creepy, especially after the revelations about the American film industry and its actresses over the past few months. Hope to hear from you, and thank you for your lovingly put-together podcasts. Thank you, Geraldine. Yes, teenagers were very much being used as love interests back in the day. It's quite uncomfortable for us to look upon now, and just wait until you hear about one of my movie reviews later on. Good heavens. I mean, I think Hollywood really pushed what was acceptable by casting 15-year-old Linda Darnell in Daytime Wife opposite two men. But I can't seem to find any record of an outrage about it at the time. Still, nice to know that we consider a smaller age gap as more acceptable these days. For some people, that is. For your trouble, have a Canterbury. Canterbury. Next question here is from Graham Simpson, who writes... Not from the golden age, but relevant to it. I've always loved Movie Movie with George C. Scott. I think it's an affectionate homage, not a parody, but would be interested in your take on it. And by the way, though I only discovered your podcasts relatively recently, I now listen to very little else as I try to catch up. They are truly wonderful. Thank you, Graham. And one more thing. What's the best way to see all these wonderful films? Is there a site or retailer you'd recommend? Well, thank you very much, Graham, first of all. Lots of movies are on YouTube. Lots of them are just a couple of pounds on Amazon. But for those other movies that are a little harder to come by, I will recommend a site called VHD. That's V-E-E-H-D dot com that contains a hell of a lot of obscure old movies. Usually, if I can't find a movie by conventional means, I'll find it there. And thank you for recommending Movie Movie. I shall put that on the old list... Have a Canterbury. In fact, have an Irish jig, Canterbury. Last message here is from Dan Weckerly, who writes, Thank you, thank you for your terrific content. In summer 2017, I took a new job that offered more salary, opportunity and engagement at work, but those upsides came at a cost, a commute of an hour and a quarter each way. I went searching for podcasts to help with the passage of time on the road, and frankly, you had me at the title. You see, It's a Wonderful Life is among my favorite films of all time. Quite possibly at the top of the heap. 
So when I saw a podcast entitled Attaboy Clarence, I knew it was for me. I vastly enjoy your commentaries and reviews. I love the old audio that presents some of the greatest male and female singers from back in the day. And I really appreciate the radio drama adaptations of well-known and lesser-known films. Back in 2013, I had the extreme fortune of interviewing Carolyn Grimes, who played Zuzu Bailey in the Capra Classic. It was one of the thrills of my life. I'll email you the link if you choose to read it. She was as charming, witty, sharp, and insightful as you would expect her to be. Thank you again for all you do. I will remain a loyal listener. One ear pressed against the car speaker, one eye on the road. Keep up the good work. Well, thank you, Dan Wickley. I'd appreciate it if you keep both eyes on the road, though. <laughs> Unless you only have one eye, like a pirate. Anyway, I read your interview. Very fine work, sir, and I'll put a link in the show notes for anyone else who'd like to go along and read Dan's interview. For your sterling work, though, and as by way of congratulations on your new job, please accept the newest of our Canterbury's. This was created by Smokey from the Rated H podcast, who's a die-hard Iron Maiden fan and who sent this in. So, ladies and gentlemen, pray silence for the first outing for the Canterbury with Madness. So throw your flipping questions into the shiny question pot. You might hear your question next time. So until then, get your thinking cap on for the question pot. Okay, that's the end. She's wined and dined on mulligan stool and never wished for turkey. She's hitched and hiked and drifted too. From Maine to Albuquerque Alas, she missed the Beaux-Arts ball And what is twice as sad She was never at a party where they honored Noel Cass Society, she says, is much too fat Preferring her Bohemia first and last She gets too hungry for dinner at eight She likes the theater But never comes late She never bothers With people she hates That's why the lady is a tramp She don't like crap games With barons and earth Won't go to Harlem in ermine and pearl Won't dish the dirt With the rest of the girls That's why the lady is a tramp She likes the free, fresh Wind in her hair Life without care She's broke, it's old Hates California Cause it's cold and it's damp That's why the lady is a tramp She goes to Coney The beach is divine She goes to Baldy 
the bleachers are fine. She follows Winston and reads every line. That's why the lady is a tramp. She likes a prize fight that isn't a fake. She loves the rowing on Central Park Lake. She goes to opera and stays wide awake. That's why the lady is a tramp. She likes the green grass under her shoes. What can she lose? She's flat, that's that. She's all alone when she lowers her lamp. That's why the lady is a And that was Sophie Tucker with The Lady is a Tramp. Thank you very much. Before I dive into some movie reviews then, just time to announce the winner of last time's competition. I asked you to identify the famous Golden Age star obscured by a blurry lens on the Attaboy Clarence website. And the prize is a great big book of Golden Age movie star posters. Now, I thought this was really easy. I thought loads of people were going to get this right, and for the first day, lots of people did get this right. But since then, I've had all kinds of answers, so obviously this wasn't as simple as I thought it was, which I'm actually glad about. Some of you guessed William Powell, Tyrone Power, Dana Andrews, Clark Gable, Montgomery Clift, Bela Lugosi. In fact, lots of you guessed Bela Lugosi. You were close. The answer is Boris Karloff. From the pile of correct answers, I draw the name... Bryce Martin. Bryce, you are the winner, so send your postal address to me here at adam at attaboyclarence.com and I shall get this book off to you ASAP. Thank you for entering, everyone, and not to worry, another competition is coming next time. But for now, let's head on over and take a look at the darker side of classic cinema, shall we? Because movies back in the day weren't always safe and cuddly. Some movies pushed the envelope a little too hard sometimes and wound up being banned. Not just by certain states in the US, but also by foreign markets and sometimes by the studios that made them. Some of these bans lasted only a short while, while some lasted for decades and some are still in force today. We'll kick off this little section with a look at one of the most indelible horror movies ever made. A film that still has the power to shock its audience 85 years after it was made. We didn't lie to you, folks. We told you we had living, breathing monstrosities. You laughed at them, shuddered at them, and yet, but for the accident of birth, you might be even as they are. They did not ask to be brought into the world, but into the world they came. Their code is a law unto themselves. Offend one, and you offend them all. So the first movie of today is perhaps the most notorious of the three, and one whose reputation still lingers. 1932's Freaks, directed by Todd Browning. 
The story is that of a traveling circus and the folks who perform there. You have clowns, trapeze artists, strongmen, and acrobats. And off to the side, inhabiting their own area out of sight, the sideshow performers, known to the rest of the circus as the freaks. At first, I could not believe my own eyes. A lot of horrible, twisted things, you know, crawling, whining, laughing. Bidon, Jean. Oh, monsieur, there must be a law in France to smother such things at birth. Or, 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 or lock them up. In this small band of people, you have Siamese twins, a half-woman, half-man, an armless girl, a human skeleton, a bearded lady, a bird girl, Many more, plus Hans, a dwarf performer, and his fiancée, Frida. She's the most beautiful big woman I have ever seen. Why, Hans, how you talk? I should be jealous pretty soon. Ah, don't be silly. Don't be silly. I've seen these women making ice at my hand. Of course, I ain't jealous. Oh, Frida, my dear. I have eyes for only one woman. The woman I asked to be my wife. Hans has fallen head over heels in love with the beautiful Cleopatra, the circus's trapeze artist, who laughs off Hans' infatuation with her at first. But when she discovers that Hans is in fact the heir to a large fortune, she conspires with the circus strongman Hercules to marry Hans and then poison him in order to get their hands on his money. But Hans is not deceived, and when he discovers Cleopatra's plan, he puts a terrifying revenge plan into action with the help of his fellow sideshow performers. Good heavens, where to start with this? <laughs> so it's worth noting that this film was not technically banned in the United States. It was merely withdrawn from release by MGM following a barrage of complaints and negative reviews. The thing is, it's almost understandable. But each time that this film veers towards being mere exploitation, it staggers back from the brink of being utterly distasteful by showing the real freaks to be the vile Cleopatra and her strongman lover Hercules. In that respect, it does contain some admirable intentions, but it is unfortunately dressed in such exploitative outer raiments. It was banned outright in other countries for many, many years, including here in the UK, where it was withheld from release for over 30 years because of being so exploitative. The problems kind of start immediately. The opening crawl to this film makes you want to screw your eyes tightly closed and unread what you've just read. People with deformities are quite openly referred to as freaks of nature and unfortunates. It states at one point that the majority of freaks themselves are endowed with normal thoughts and emotions. It also says at one point that never again will such a story be filmed as modern science is rapidly eliminating such blunders of nature from the world. And this is before the story has even started. So it's fair to say that this is not the most comfortable film to watch, which is fine, right, because this is a horror film. 
or at least that's what it says on the packet. And horror films are not supposed to be comfortable films to watch, right? No, because the horror here, in the views of the people that made this movie, comes from looking at people with severe disabilities, which is an abhorrent viewpoint to hold. That's not to say that there aren't horrifying elements to the film. I think that anyone who's seen this film will agree with me that the ending of the movie, when the revenge upon Cleopatra is shown in all its glory, is one of the most repellent sights in not just classic cinema, but in cinema in general. And the sight of the sideshow performers crawling through the mud as the thunder and lightning crash around them is quite terrifying to behold because it is a nightmarish image and it's very well shot. The film was actually based on a short story called Spurs by Todd Robbins, although when you analyse them both, you see that only a small portion of Freaks was actually taken from the story. In the film, Hans marries Cleopatra, and at the wedding feast, she has a few too many to drink and drunkenly embarrasses Hans and his fellow performers, throwing wine in their faces and casting them out. In the story, Spurs, the Cleopatra character is Jeanne-Marie, who's married the dwarf Jacques. At their wedding feast, she again has too much to drink and picks up Jacques, calling him a little ape, and declaring that she could carry him on her shoulders from one side of France to another. Jacques' revenge is different, but just as cruel as Hans' revenge. It turns out that in order to shame the woman who has shamed him, he forces her to do exactly as she has declared. Threatening death against her, he forces her to put him on her shoulders and carry him across France. The story takes its name Spurs from the fact that he wears them as he rides her, gleefully digging them into her flesh in order to make her walk faster. The Wedding Feast is the only similarity between the two stories, but they both contain gruesome endings. Incredibly, the version of Freaks we have today is very truncated. Sixteen minutes were removed from the original film, which made the film even more monstrous. This excised footage included a scene where Hercules is castrated, as well as a prolonged sequence of torture against Cleopatra. It's a very well-known movie, but... Does anyone actually enjoy watching it? Because in the final analysis, when trying to decide whether or not the film has any merit, you have to ask yourself if Freaks is a good film or not. Because let's just suppose that this film hadn't used people with very real disabilities in it, and we look at the movie itself as a piece of work. I may be alone here, but I think it's a really bad film. I mean, it's terribly acted, it's not very well directed on the whole, and it's certainly not a pleasant film or story to watch. Therefore, do I recommend it? I know it's held up as a grim classic, but I have to say no. My second film for today may surprise you, and remarkably, it's the only film from today that is still unavailable. A Disney film from 1946, Song of the South, starring James Basket, Bobby Driscoll, Luana Patton, and Hattie McDaniel. Aunt Pemby. What is it, child? Is Uncle Venus real? Real? Of course he's real. 
You just wait to hear them tell a tale about Brer Rabbit. Then you know he's real. Seven-year-old Johnny goes to live at his grandmother's Georgia plantation during the Reconstruction era, between 1867 and 1877. Upon arriving, he's told by his parents that they're separating for a while. And to escape the heartache, Johnny makes friends with local girl Ginny, local boy Toby, and with local storyteller Uncle Remus, a recently freed plantation slave who has a story for every occasion, featuring a very famous rabbit. By the time he get it stuck in his mind that there ain't nobody can outdo it, up somebody jump and do him scandalous. What you laughing about, says Bear Fox? Says he. And Bear Rabbit, he couldn't say nothing. Well then, says Bear Fox, says he, I'll settle your hash right now. And with that, he grabbed Bear Rabbit for the tail and made for the dash him again the ground. But just then, Bear Rabbit's tail snapped off real short, and he tucked through the cotton patch like the dog was after. And from that day to this, the only tail that Bear Rabbit's got to his name was a little old ball of cotton. Hey, what happened to Brother Fox, Uncle Remus? <laughs> Won't do to put out too much cloth for to cut one pair of pants. Uncle Remus, you tell the best tails in the whole United States of Georgia. So chances are you may have seen this movie some time ago. It was pretty freely distributed before 1986, and if you're as old as I am, then it may have played a very brief part in your childhood. Since 1986, though, which was the 40th anniversary of the film's release, Disney have chosen to withhold it from release. It has never shown up on home video, and according to the official wisdom from the Disney front office, there are no plans to do so. If you haven't seen it, you may be asking why. First of all, it's worth noting that the film is set in the Reconstruction period, which was the period following the Civil War, and when most slaves had been freed. The problem is that the film doesn't ever make this clear. For all we know, this could be set smack bang in the middle of slavery's grasp on America. Most people think that it is. And so what they see is a Disney-fied, sanitized version of slavery. Hold this film up against a more realistic depiction, such as 12 Years a Slave, and you begin to see why this film is problematic. A film that shows slavery as cuddly and full of happiness is not that easy to watch with a clear conscience. The controversy surrounding Song of the South began almost immediately upon its release, but believe it or not, the initial protests were all aimed at Disney because he dared to portray Uncle Remus as sympathetic. Protesters gathered at cinemas in New York carrying placards reading, We fought for Uncle Sam, not Uncle Tom. Now, this was met by a more enlightened reaction from critics, who found the Disney version of slavery to be utterly offensive. Bosley Crowther for the New York Times wrote, No matter how much one argues that it's all childish fiction, the master and slave relations are so lovingly regarded, with the Negroes bowing and scraping and singing spirituals in the night, that one might almost imagine that you figure Abe Lincoln made a mistake in freeing them. And watching the film, you do get that feeling that if this was slavery, then what was wrong with it? Everyone lives in a utopia of respect and admiration. There are no punishments, no racial slurs spoken, no violence, no bigotry. 
Everyone lives happily alongside each other, the white folk in their grand mansions and the slaves in their shacks. How could these people, supposedly oppressed and prejudiced against, possibly be unhappy? After all, they spend so much of the film singing in the cornfields. And that's a dangerous type of myth-making to imprint upon a child's mind. Because you need to remember that this is a kid's film. Its audience is children. The debate raged for many years after its release, and finally, after its 40th anniversary, Disney decided to put the film away in its vaults and forget about its existence. But that was after 40 years of the film's influence. I mean, for a film you can't legally see anymore, its signature song, Zippity Doodah, is pretty much known throughout the world. Its animated sections, in which Br'er Rabbit appears, are instantly recognizable. There's even a ride dedicated to Br'er Rabbit and his friends at Disneyland, Splash Mountain. It's still there. It's almost a shame that Disney didn't try to figure out some way of telling the Br'er Rabbit tales without the slavery setting. Because the animated parts are very fun. The tale of Johnny settling into the area and coming to terms with his parents' separation is very good, if a little slow. Uncle Remus, as portrayed by James Basquette, is a perfectly lovable character and very well played. And the songs are all kinds of fun. So in a way, it's a real shame, because there are so many ingredients to enjoy in Song of the South, but the likelihood is that it'll never properly see the light of day again. Because slavery is not, as it turns out, a suitable subject for a whimsical children's film. If you're going to tell the story of slavery to children, then it really needs to be done in the classroom. Wonderful feeling, wonderful the last film today is perhaps the most disturbing of the three. This film was never technically banned. In fact, you can watch it on YouTube. But it has been shunned by pretty much everyone since it was made, and you can see why. In fact, the guys who make Mystery Science Theatre 3000 have publicly stated that it is the worst film they ever considered for the show and that unanimously, they all decided that it was far too disturbing. Kevin Murphy, who plays Tom Servo on the show, said that after watching it, he needed a good cry and a good shower. And you can kind of see why. This is Child Bride from 1938 which pretty much tells you everything you need to know. Sadie, how's the baby? Pretty good, Miss Carol. We're missing you at school. Well, my husband says there's nothing finer than a bunch of young'uns. If that school mom don't quit preaching our women, folks, she's fixing to get herself into a mess of trouble. The story here is of teacher Miss Carol, who, along with her district attorney boyfriend, have mounted a crusade to raise the age of consent. They've done this to halt the alarming number of children being married off to much older men, particularly in the Ozarks region of America. Charles, I'm going to fight for these people until a state realizes that child marriage must be stopped. Sometimes I wonder if you, if you really do love me, Eileen. Here, the practice of leering older men taking preteen brides is rife and Miss Carol is determined to stamp it out. But will the efforts of Miss Carol and her boyfriend, Charles, be enough to save the honor of 12-year-old Jenny Colton, 
who's caught the eye of middle-aged local bully, Jake Bulby. What are you aiming at? Flora, I've decided to take myself a wife. Why do you come to me? Oh, don't get scared. I don't want you. I want to talk to you, though, about her. You mean Ginny? That's right. So let's just review the film itself for a moment. This was made outside of the studio system and on a tiny, tiny budget, and it definitely shows. They also seemingly didn't have the money to hire any actual actors because the performances are, across the board, utterly atrocious. There's not one convincing line of dialogue in the entire film, but let's face it. If you were excited about paying your money to see a movie called Child Bride, which carried taglines such as young victims of man's desire, and where lust was called just, and a throbbing drama of shackled youth, then you obviously weren't there for the acting. It is a very uncomfortable film to watch. You literally have a town full of paedophiles, most of whom are already married to children. In fact, we see that in some cases, these children have children of their own, which is disturbing in itself. The drama really centers around young Jenny Colton, who's 11 in this movie and who was played by then 12-year-old Shirley Mills. She's renowned as the prettiest girl in town and has a boyfriend of her own age, but the leering mountain men in the town are all cackling and wondering who will be the dirty old man that gets to marry her first. In fact, it's even remarked upon at one point that they don't want to wait until she's grown up. Well, how's it feel? He's caught in the prettiest youngin' in the community. Well, Jake, you'd better be a hurryin', because the school mom has a fun sweetheart fighting to pass a marriage law at the state capitol. Yeah, and if it does, you'll be courting Jenny for seven long years. Yeah, I'll take care of that. Jenny's father, a habitual drunkard and wife-beater, comes home one night filled with moonshine and rumors about his wife's infidelities. So he beats her senseless and then passes out due to a minor knife wound she gives him. This allows an opportunity for local thug Jake Bulby to steal into the house and murder Jenny's dad. When her mother comes to, Bulby convinces her that she killed him and offers to hide the crime in return for Jenny's hand in marriage. And so Jenny is duly given in marriage to this approximately 50-year-old man. The marriage scene is very tough. You have him gruffly ogling his child bride in her pretty dress, and her opposite him literally half his height, hair curled like a baby doll. Do you, Jake Bulby, take this, this girl child that you hold by the hand to be your lawful wedded wife? I do. And you, Jenny Colton, do you take this man that you hold by the hand to be your lawful wedded husband? I do. And now, I pronounce you man and wife. You may kiss the bride. When the ceremony's done, he takes her by the face and plants a great big kiss on her lips before whisking her off to the marital bed. Now, you may be wondering how on earth a film like this could ever have been made and released with such a strict production code in place at the time. Well, that's because the makers of this film first made it outside of the studio system and therefore did not have to submit the film for appraisal by the MPA. And secondly, they proudly proclaimed that this film was being made to educate the world 
about the shocking practice of child marriage in rural communities. You see this little girl marrying this belching old drunk pedophile? Well, this sort of thing has to stop. You see how he kisses the little girl full on the lips? This has to stop. You see how he ogles her 11-year-old legs as she skips to school? This has to stop. But it's very difficult to use education as an excuse to show these things when in the middle of the film, you have a gratuitously explicit scene of child nudity. Jenny visits the swimming hole with her friend Billy and removes all of her clothes. The 12-year-old Shirley Mills then has to hold an entire conversation with Billy topless. Freddie, you ain't going swimming with me no more, so don't you take your clothes off. We've always gone in swimming together. Why not now? Teacher says not to. Why? Well, because... Because we're not what we used to be. You mean we're different? How? No, we're the same. Well, you can't see me without my clothes on. You're seriously saying that you couldn't have merely shown her head <laughs> during this conversation? Or maybe have this conversation before she's taken her clothes off? Anyway, she then dives into the water and the camera follows this naked, frolicking child for a full two minutes of screen time, displaying for the viewer her entire naked body. It isn't shown from a distance. It's shown very clearly and closely, and even cuts away from time to time to show the local paedophile leering at her too. This instantly negates the filmmaker's argument that this film was made merely for educational purposes. If child sex was so wrong to you, and if you were so eager to educate the world about how wrong it is, then why on earth did you show this child being sexualized for a full two minutes? It's like the Daily Mail newspaper in the UK. They tell you all about how disgusting it is that a teen starlet has chosen to flaunt her body to the world accompanied by 50 close-up pictures of her that they've taken with long lenses pointing up her skirt as she climbs out of a car. You can't preach against smut if you're the one creating the smut. So the film is quite vile to watch, and it is appallingly made. It is an exploitation film without a doubt that was peddled as educational, but which was obviously made by a gang of the very men it sets out to condemn. I mean... There really is nothing to recommend it. It's just one horrible scene after another. If there isn't a dirty old man leering at a child's legs, then there's a husband drunkenly beating up his wife in their rundown shack, followed by a paedophile watching a little girl swimming naked, followed by the same little girl dragging her beaten mother into bed, followed by an old man kissing that little girl on the lips, followed by the same little girl again being dragged off to bed for sex with a murderer. How on earth do you recommend this film to anyone? It literally has no merit. It's not well made. It's not well written. It's abhorrent to watch. It just makes me really angry. Plus, it features the worst spelling bee of all time. Jenny, the word automobile. A-U-T-O-M-O-B-I-L-E. Correct. Freddie, the word milking. M-I-L-K-G-I-N-G. Freddie, you didn't study your spelling lesson last night, did you? I mean, how do you mess up a spelling bee? Avoid it like the plague, ladies and gentlemen. Child Bride is the worst film I've ever seen. And I've seen The Gorilla. But don't just take my word for it. Let's see what Brooke thinks of today's films in Brooke's Inside Looks. Brooke Donnell. 
she's a very clever mademoiselle. When you need some information found, she's half librarian and half bloodhound. Well, joining me on the show today is all-time greatest researcher, the Library of Congress's greatest treasure, and all-round fact detective, Miss Brooke Darnell. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Very well. It's wonderful to talk to you. You too. <laughs> it's very good of you to join me here again, and thank you so much for all your investigative skills over the past few weeks. Oh, it's fun. Thanks for having me. Um, you've been busy digging up some very interesting stuff about the films I've reviewed today. First off, Freaks. Did you turn up any interesting trivial facts about this film? So I found a gossip column from the motion picture Herald. And so it starts off talking about like different things that were going on with Clark Gable and Greta Garbo. And then it goes into um, the set of Todd Browning's The Freaks. Mm-hmm. Um and it talks about how the bearded lady doesn't like the Siamese twins because the Siamese twins are pretty girls and are allowed to eat at the MGM commissary. <laughs> um, and the rest of the cast has to eat in a special dining room. Um, oh, that's segregated even in the, in the way they eat. Yeah. And then the giant tries to seal scenes from the human skeleton. Um, and it says, it's easy. All he has to do is stand in front of the thin fellow. <laughs> it's the weirdest gossip column ever. It must have been fun writing that one. <laughs> and then the sword swallower won't speak to the ape man and poor Todd Browning's hair is getting whiter by the day. <laughs> and they all live together in an apartment house and are transported back and forth between the studio. <laughs> so weird. To think of them all living together in a house, but it's all around and armless. It's interesting how the like newspapers and things treat the the cast just as if they were any other movie star. There's like pictures of um, Todd Browning sta- standing at this in front of this nice car with um, some of the cast from the movie, just as if they were Clark Gable and Greta Garbo, and <laughs> <laughs> rightly so. According to your information, it seems that life may have mirrored art when it came to the actual exhibition of the film itself, when it went out on its traveling roadshow. Right. So MGM used, they categorized the cast as strange children of the shadows. So they really played into kind of these people as as monsters, as if it was like a Frankenstein film. So didn't they um, use the actual... um, sideshow performers as part of the roadshow when they took the film traveling around the country there. Right. So the conjoined twins would would go along with the film and they would be there at the premieres. It was literally like they had a freak show outside. It's so weird. Right. It was exploitation central really, wasn't it? It's very strange. Um your research has also highlighted another film I'd not heard of. Its name is Tomorrow's Children. I mean if you need proof that exploitation films lead to exploitation films, you find that here. Can you give us an idea of what Tomorrow's Children is about? So it's a about how people with genetic issues should be sterilized so they don't produce any more offspring. So it's kind of like like the stuff you would hear about Nazis. It's awful, isn't it? It sounds really vile. I have to say, it sounds as though it was made to criticize like eugenics and things, but it sounds like it probably did more to promote it as well. Plus, the idea that disabled people should be sterilized out of existence is pretty horrific there's a couple of people from freaks in that film i think aren't there? right i think the quote pinheads is what the article says i really feel sorry for those people especially because in that scene in freaks when they're playing by the by the pond and the farmer runs up and he's trying to chase them off the land 
and they're cowering behind the the older lady and, and you realize that they're just children well the yeah that's what the lady refers to them as children i am madame petralini these children are in my circus children they're monsters oh your circus i understand so you see monsieur when i get a chance i like to take them into the sunshine and let them play like children that is what most of them are. Children. Um, it seems that the idea to make Freaks itself came from a rather interesting source, because I didn't realise this until I read your research. Yeah, Harry Earls suggested to Browning that he read Spurs. <laughs> Harry Earls obviously plays Hans, the, the, the midget performer in the, in the film. Right. You'd think that he would be sort of against the idea or against the exploitation side of it, but it turns out the idea... At, came sort of are you familiar with the spur story at all a little bit it's a lot different i think they play up the the idea of these people being not whole in freaks whereas in i think in the book it was just this person that had become disabled and then was out for revenge if you've read it i've read i read it um last week in preparation for this um and it really does paint disabled people is quite evil yeah well in freaks browning has them crawling through the mud with knives so it's interesting how to begin with he kind of shows them as as normal people Mm. you know they're like hanging up laundry and chatting about guys and then it just like switches and and he portrays them as these evil creatures you watched freaks today i believe didn't you yes what did you what did you think of it? So I watched it in high school. It was like one of those like weird movies that you find like a racer head and it was like a, a copy of a copy that somebody whose cousin worked at a um, video store had made. And so my memory of it, I think, was a lot harsher. So it wasn't as bad mm-hmm. as I remembered it. Mm-hmm. But then I, I think I saw different things about it this time than I had when I'd watched it when I was younger. That, that's exactly the same as me, actually. I watched it when I was younger and thought it was just, it was it was like a sideshow attraction in itself. Right. But, but I think now where I've sort of got political beliefs and um, humane beliefs. Right. I watch it and I think, I watch it and I think, God, about it. One of the articles that you pulled up, and one point in particular struck me as quite profound. The whole film basically argues that sideshow performers should be treated as regular people. But then every now and then, the action stops to show in great detail the physical deformity of a certain character. So literally all the dialogue will stop and we'll see a whole scene of Prince Randian, who has no arms or legs, rolling a cigarette with his mouth and then lighting it. And then the film starts back up again. You know, the, the film's going, like you say, they're talking about guys and they're getting shooed away by someone. And, and then all of a sudden you'll see him rolling a cigarette and it takes about two minutes. And doesn't, you know, the dialogue all stops and you're just watching him do the cigarette thing. And then you're watching um, Frances O'Connor, who has no arms, drinking from a glass using her feet. So it stops for that as well. So the film in itself is kind of a freak show and exploits its performance because, you know, every now and then it stops to show you another one. Um, despite preaching about the fact that these people are more than their disabilities. So. It goes back and forth between those two ideas of of people are normal to look at this thing that they're doing. Or... So in the end, the film itself is kind of a, it's kind of a freak show, even yeah. though it's preaching that they're bad. You know? It's just such a weird film to, um, to try and moralise. But of the three films, it's the most watchable. It has the most story. 
I just think it's a bad film. If all the performance and everything were played by able-bodied people and they were made to look disabled, I still think it would be a bad film. It's just the acting's terrible and I don't know. I just, I, it's hard to like, isn't it? It is. Well, I was reading one of the um, reviews of the movie and it, it talked about the actors and then it said something about the um, sideshow performers and it says, well, they're sideshow performers. <laughs> <laughs> so like they didn't have anything to say because they're doing the best job they can. That's not the the role they are trained for. Yeah, I guess so. They're made to just stand in front of people and, you know, drink a glass of water or something. They? Right. But as you say, they, you know, they get turned into evil creatures at the end and, and they spend the whole, tri- whole time trying to be humane and then they all all band together and commit group murder. Oh, I read that it was supposed to be 90 minutes and they cut down a lot of the stuff from the end. So there was, there was like a lot more about Hans being uh, castrated and more about the actual deforming of the yeah. bird lady. Yeah, they were going to castrate him, weren't they, on film? I'm really kind of struggling to work out how he would have done that. Because obviously it was filmed, wasn't it? And he just cut that part out. Right. But how do you communicate that in an old film? <laughs> do you, you see the view from behind and you know, they've got a leg each and they're pulling it apart and he walks towards the middle with a knife. I just really can't can't visualize it. Yeah, I don't know. Look, come on, Dana, you're going to have to do better than this. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me exactly. <laughs> it's a film I find really, really uncomfortable to watch. Yeah. I didn't used to. But yeah, I do know. How she got that way will never be known. Some say a jealous lover. Others, that it was the code of the freaks. Um, on to Song of the South. You rewatched this one yesterday, is that right? Yes. What did you think of it? So that's one of the movies that I remember watching when I was a kid. Um, but the only thing I really remembered was the animated scenes. I don't remember the live action stuff at all. And that I watched it yesterday. It's really boring. <laughs> so glad you said that. It was really hard for me to to like focus on it and watch it. I just kept tuning out. Like even the animated stuff, it's it's beautifully animated, but it's just boring. I think the Br'er Rabbit stuff would have been good outside of the Uncle Remus stuff. I mean, you know, I can't work out why they, they didn't um, just make an animated Br'er Rabbit film and have different adventures and things. Instead, they've saddled it around the whole you know, slavery issue. It makes it quite hard to present to children these days. It's a weird one. I can see the harm in presenting slavery as harmless to impressionable minds. So it's kind of dangerous as a kid's film because they shouldn't be seeing slavery as cuddly or fun or nice or you know, But if you portray it more realistically, then it becomes an adult film, which kind of negates the purpose of making it in the first Right. Place. Well, what I read said that it takes place after the reconstruction. So they're not so they're not slaves. No, they're freed. But but it's not made clear in the film. Right. Like you have to go and find that out for yourself, do you? Well, if you think about so Uncle Remus is packing up to leave and nobody stops him, so he's allowed to leave. But then he tells the story about Br'er Rabbit leaving and how how like, you know, pastures aren't greener somewhere else and it's better to just stay home so it just reinforces that you should stay um, and then you have all the uh the uh the freed slaves at the beginning all, all sat around the fire and singing their songs and everything and um lots of people report that you know the slaves never sang songs because they were happy they, were, they sang them because well they were either coded messages helping other slaves to escape or 
it was to to bemoan them to bemoan their lives right so i read that it um that that it's been like on the cusp of being released like three different times recently and every time they mm. they pull it back what do you think do you think it should be re-released probably not like there are ways to watch it and it, i don't think disney should make money off of it yeah Yes. They would have to package it in a way where there was like some explanation before it was shown. And then maybe if they like donated any proceeds to some cause or something. Have to come with all these mandatory intros and stuff. Right. Because it's it's become such a cause now, hasn't it, this film? It's, it's kind of, it has to be explained every time you watch it. Right. And I looked up what the word brer means. Brother. Yeah. So it's like the writer's idea of how black people would say brother do you do you get do you feel like um uncomfortable when you watched when you watched it did you feel you know, sort of racially uncomfortable when you watched it yeah especially because i'm from alabama so i grew up around things like this do you think it portrays that era in a, in a responsible way no not at all not at all it's not a like a topic for kids in that way. It's such a weird one, isn't it? Because it doesn't go out of its way to sort of, you know, say, oh, Uncle Remus was a slave. And, but, you know, he's quite clearly living in a shack. <laughs> There's a, a white lady in a mansion. Right. And then the, the mom, yeah, she treats him like Lassie. She tells him to go away. Yeah. Like it's that same feeling like when you're watching one of those Lassie movies where somebody's mean and they have to go away. And then it's that same like heart-wrenching feeling that's a very good point actually i didn't really consider that but yeah she doesn't even treat him like a child does she she treats him like like not even a servant it's like a pet almost right like go away now go away you've done wrong stay away right <laughs> it's like a dog dog that's chewed a hat or something yeah yeah and song of the south is a bit of a shame really because on one hand you want to be able to enjoy the Br'er rabbit stories and the songs but at the same time i can't show the film to my kids because they might confuse Disney's version of slavery with the reality. So looks like the only way of sort of enjoying the film is in snapshots. I mean, you can watch Br'er Rabbit's parts or zippity Doodah on YouTube. And for now, I think that's kind of the only acceptable way to, to watch that. Film. Yeah. So they released those individually, you know, outside of the movie so that people could watch. Because I remember that being on TV when I was little, the animated parts. Like cartoon retrospectives and things, weren't they? They just show the, those parts here. Yeah. So there was a lot about how Walt Disney knew that this was a controversial topic. And so he did things like hired a Jewish writer that he thought would be more sensitive to the topic. And he invited the president of the NAACP to view the script rewrites. Mm -hmm. So I just wonder, like, why did he make it? So he knew there was going to be all this controversy and he knew that it was going to cause a lot of problems. So what was he hoping would happen? Did he think that this was a good way to portray the topic? It's a hard one, isn't it? Because I've heard this point raised as well, because it's almost like he went out to offend, not, not offend so much, but just didn't really care what people thought. He said, well, I want to make this story and so I am. So in that, in that respect, it seems like it might have been a bit of an ego trip. Perhaps he just liked Br'er Rabbit and Uncle Remus and, well, I don't care what anyone says, but didn't really consider that, you know, it would have to be pulled from release one day. I think it made him a lot of money. You think it did? Yeah. Okay. And then they made Splash Mountain in Disneyland. That's... It's still there, isn't it? A Br'er Rain. Yeah, it's still there. Yeah. 
except um, Br'er Rabbit gets his hand stuck in a, a honey pot or a beehive. Instead of a tar baby. Yeah. Cool. But as you say, it's it's a pretty boring film. Isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> you just can't excuse that. Right. Uh, lastly, good heavens, I know you watched Child Bride in preparation for today's show. What did you think of Child Bride, Brooke? <laughs> so the moral of the story, <laughs> if you're going to peep on a preteen, murder their father, blackmail their mother, and then marry them, you're probably going to get shot. <laughs> By a dwarf. <laughs> well, I thought the boy shot him. See, that's what I thought too. But no, it's the dwarf. The dwarf guy. Oh, yeah. I thought it was... No, um, uh, it's, it's very dark at that point. Right? Yeah, I thought... I thought... Because he said, oh, I'm going to kill him. And then he like races off from the teacher's... Mm-hmm. Like, c- because the boy's talking to the teacher. Guy's a little bigger. I kill him. Betty, you mustn't say that. Perhaps we may still be able to stop this child marriage. And then he like races off, and I thought he was going to murder the guy. If you watch, um, the uh, he's he's lining up the shot, isn't he? He's going to kill him himself. And I think he does fire. But if you look, the dwarf guy pokes up on the right of the of cabin. <laughs> it's a very dark shot, but he pokes up and shoots him, and that's when he. Oh, I must have looked away. <laughs> Don't blame you. It's just a really awful film, isn't it? I mean, it is. that swimming scene. Oh my god! Because like up until then, I was like, "Well, this this movie's a little weird," but I don't see why it got banned. And then the swimming scene, and I was like, "Oh, okay." <laughs> have you seen the unedited version, or have you seen the the censored version? Oh, what I watched was not edited. Okay, so um, so did you see the topless part before the swimming part? Yes. Yeah, that's um. <laughs> it's on YouTube. The whole thing. I know it's uncomfortable in itself, isn't it? It was in. I found a catalog of educational films you could order. Mm-hmm. Um, I think for like missionary schools in Europe, and it was listed as something you could order. <laughs> that's crazy. Educational for who? Would you like to be a pedophile one day? Then you know your education starts. <laughs> it's oh my god! It's just an awful. <laughs> that swimming scene is just. It goes on and on and on. It's like twelve minutes long. <laughs> she it's so in long. the water, and is it? And you thinking, oh, it must end soon. And then pervy guy turns up, and then the old woman comes up behind him and says, "Oh, she's pretty, isn't she?" Oh, my God. and then it goes on and on. <laughs> it's very hard to watch. But aside from aside from the nudity and everything, it's just really, really bad. <laughs> it's really washed out. That part where they're dragging the teacher through the woods to tar and feather that took. That was a long scene as well. I was like, how long are these woods? Where have they taken her? <laughs> they had time to kill. But um, the part where um, Jenny's father beats up her mother as well, I was watching that thinking, Christ, he looks like he's really punching her in the face. I know. Well, well, then I wasn't sure what had happened to him. Like, did he have a heart attack? Did he get shot? What happened? Well, I think, I think what happened is that Jake Bowlby came into the place and stabbed the father. Okay. And then, and then ran out again. So the, the wife thought it was her that had done it because she cuts him, doesn't she? Right, right. But it's kind of cu- kind of cuts away and there's lightning and stuff. I must have looked away a lot during that. <laughs> I don't blame you. But the, the camera does linger over um, Shirley Mills quite a lot. Yeah. Well, some of the shots were really pretty. Like the beginning where she's um, she's like outside and she's talking to her friend. It's It's funny how crisp and clear some of these old movies are and they look like... Their new movie made to look old. Um, do you know that that boy asked Shirley Mills to marry him? 
in later years. Oh, did did they get married? They didn't. No, she didn't marry him. But um, the film kind of vanished and um, popped up in the 70s, I think it was. And um, she became known for it again. And she was asked to appear on all these circuits where the film was being shown. And um, so was he. And he came along and they kind of reconnected. And he asked her to marry him. <laughs> she said no. Aww. <laughs> He's got to marry an old man. <laughs> Every girl's dream. Did you find the kiss a little bit disturbing as well? Which one? When they got married. <laughs> yeah, which one? Oh, oh, yeah, when yeah. They got married. That was weird. Like the whole thing was uncomfortable. Yeah, it was just icky. It was very icky. A lot of people have said, um, you know, I told a couple of people I'm doing Child Bride, and um, they they all said, was it good? No. no. And uh, they said, well, thank you. Now we don't have to watch it. She <laughs> wonder if I'd said it was good. Would you have gone and watched it? <laughs> uh, in what world would that be a good film? It's so weird that it was it was marketed as educational. Yeah. Like that's how they got around, I guess, the censors. They they sent it through like local channels or something. Well, they um they did it outside of the studio system. So they didn't have to get a certificate. They were doing that for a lot of exploitation films, a lot of poverty row films. So they just didn't get a rating, and um, which meant that the, the MPA couldn't force any cuts on them. So then they just took it around the circuits, literally themselves. They got a few prints and, and took it to local cinemas and said, would you like to show this? It's adults only and it's you know, wow. this, this, and it's educational with the speech marks. Well, also the dress she puts on at the beginning, it's so short. It's very short, isn't it? Especially in the back, there's like a panel cut out. So there's like a portion of the back of the dress that's even shorter than the rest of the short dress. Poor kid. And everyone in town is a pervert as well. <laughs> like literally every man in, in town is a pedophile. Yeah. Well, you lived in Alabama. <laughs> <laughs> I'm joking, Brooke. Sorry. <laughs> everyone in Alabama, I'm very sorry. I'll cut that part. Yeah, de- definitely. <laughs> <laughs> well, Brooke, thank you so much for coming back. You're welcome. Thank you for watch- making me watch these terrible movies. That's fine. That's okay. It's all part of, <laughs> it's part of the service. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. It's such a wonderful, wonderful pleasure to have you back on the show. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Bye. Bye. And my hugest thanks to Brooke Darnell for her help today. Thank you, Brooke, as always. The radio play I have for you today is based on a film that faced heavy censorship when it was released. This is Waterloo Bridge, originally written by Robert E. Sherwood, and which was turned into a 1931 pre-code drama by James Whale, starring Mae Clark as a chorus girl who turns to prostitution in order to scratch out a living. It was remade in 1940 with Vivian Lee in the leading role and was somewhat sanitized and given a thick veneer of gloss. In this version, Myra, the main character, is a ballerina who falls in love with an officer but who turns to prostitution to support herself when she learns that he's died in the war. The version I have for you today is the Screen Director's Playhouse take on the story starring the one and only Norma Shearer, herself the subject of much censorship during the pre-code era in films such as The Divorcee and A Free Soul. Get those hankies out as we take a journey over to Waterloo Bridge. I'll see you afterwards. This is the Screen Director's Playhouse, one of the weekly features on NBC's All-Star Festival of comedy, music, mystery, and drama. Tonight, the Screen Directors are honored to present the very beloved and distinguished star, Miss Norma Shearer, in Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer's screenplay of Robert Sherwood's drama, Waterloo Bridge. Now, ladies and gentlemen, transcribe the first act of Waterloo Bridge, 
starring Miss Norma Shearer in the role of Myra. The year was 1939, a regrettable year, miserable, dark, maniacal. War crowds long gathered and able to carry their swollen burden had come apart at the seams. The Nazi vulture was in the throes of spreading his vicious tentacles to entrap the world. On Waterloo Bridge, hair streaked gray, Colonel Roy Cronin stood staring at an object in his hand. Tenderly, he looked at the good luck charm, and caressingly, he held it. In his eyes, there was a look of loneliness. It was as if he were searching into the past, groping desperately for the happiness and heartbreak that began here on Waterloo Bridge in another war. The First World War, 1917. Never mind your bag now, miss. They're out to straight this bridge. We better get in the shelter. Come on. Not till I pick up my good luck charm, Captain. You little fool, are you tired of life? I've had it for years. It brings me luck. Such as air raids? Oh, thank heavens, I've found it. Now, Captain, do you think it would be unmilitary if we were, were to run? Let's go. <laughs> Come along. Hurry. Hmm, that one was close. Well, we're safe here. There may be some space over there by the wall. Shall we wriggle through? All right. <laughs> Excuse us, please. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, uh, let us through, please. Uh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Here we are. Better, huh? Oh, yes, thanks. Much better. Were you out walking alone? <laughs> no. I lost my friends in the crush. I hope I'm not late for the theater. Are you an actress? No, I'm a dancer. Madame Olga Kirova's International Ballet. You uh, pirouette and all that sort of stuff? Oh, certainly. I can do an entrechassis. I beg your pardon? <laughs> I can cross my feet six times in midair. Wow. Nijinsky could do it ten. But that only happens once in a lifetime. It must be good for the muscles of the... Must be good for the muscles. I should think a dancer's muscles would be like a strong man. Oh, not quite. That would be dreadful. We try to combine slenderness with strength. I've been dancing since I was 12, and I, I don't think the muscles are overdeveloped. Uh, oh, no, no, not in your case. Of course, we have to train like athletes. Madame believes in rigid discipline. I, I wish I could go to the theater tonight. Oh, why don't you come? No, unfortunately, I have a colonel's dinner, and it takes a lot of nerve to miss a colonel's dinner. Are you home on leave? I have been. My home's in Scotland. And now you have to go back to, to, to France, I mean? Tomorrow. Oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, this dreadful war. I suppose it is. Yet, around the corner of every second, there's the fascination of the unknown. We're both facing it this instant. Oh, we face the unknown in peacetime, too. You're rather a matter of fact, aren't you? Yes. You're rather romantic, aren't you? Well, I never enjoyed an air raid more. No. <laughs> shall we go now or wait for the next one? Oh, it's very tempting, but I, I think we'd better go. Uh, shall I carry your purse? No, no. I, I only drop it in emergencies. Well, I hope I'm around the next time it happens. It isn't very likely, is it? You go back to France, and I... And you? We may go to America. Oh, that does sound unlikely. I'm sorry. So am I. So late, I'm afraid I'll have to take a taxi, if I can, if I can get one. I've I wish known... I could... 
What were you going to say? Well, I, I wish I could have seen your ballet. I'm sure it would have been a pleasant memory in the trenches. What were you going to say? Oh, just that I... I don't know anyone at the front. And I'm afraid it'll bring it home to me now, knowing you. Not that I really know you, of course, but... Oh, here's a cab. Oh, cabby! Thank you very much, Captain. I hope you get back safe and sound. Thank you. Here, take this. You're, you're good luck charm. Perhaps it'll bring you luck. I hope it does. Oh, now, look here. I can't take it. It means so much to you. You'd better have it. I was beginning to rely on it too much. Well, that's wonderfully kind of you. Olympic theater, please, Cabby. Goodbye. You can stop dancing. Oh, yes. <laughs> Hurry up with the wings, Kitty. I want to point them out to you. There, there, in the fourth row. He's nice, isn't he? Yes. He's a bit of all right. Hmm. Must have ditched the colonel. <laughs> you don't think he'll come backstage, do you? <gasps> what would Madame say? Well, we must watch and pray. Girls. Kitty. Myra. Madame. Myra, what is a fire de bourree? A pas de bourree is a progression on points by a sequence of very small, even steps. If you know it, why do you not do it during the performance? And Kitty. Yes? Your arabesques were jumpy. They were positively epileptic. Uh, the doorman is calling. I'll, I'll see what he wants. The performance tonight was disgraceful. But, I, Kitty, that note, that was just handed to you. Bring it to me. Oh, it's nothing. Hand it to me. Oh. Well, it's... it's, it's just an old friend, a, a man I used to know in a show. I do not need to be reminded that you were an American chorus girl in a review. Your behavior... Madame. Keep out of it, Myra. No, Kitty. It, it's for me, madame. Then you may read it. Aloud, please. But, madame, I... Read it, please. As you see... I cannot bear to spend my last evening with my colonel after all. Please have supper with me, your friend of the shelter. P.S. I'm sure you will, because I have a good luck charm which has already changed and my luck. And the signature? There isn't one. And if there were one, what would it be? I don't know. I only know he's an officer, madame. Indeed. I must emphasize again that if you want supper parties, officers, and delights... You should not be here with me, but in other occupations. Kitty, a pen and papier, please. Yes, madame. War is no excuse for indecorum, madame. You do not honor the ballet with your presence in it. The ballet honors you. The pen and paper, madame. Set it on the table. Now write, please, Mara. Yes, madame Kiroa. Dear sir, what is his rank? A captain. Dear captain... I am greatly honored by your kind invitation, but regret that I cannot... 
wait a minute. I beg your pardon? I'm Kitty, Myra's friend. Uh, where do you want to meet her? Uh, Myra? Uh -huh. Oh, well, how do you do? I do very well, thank you, but where do you want to meet her? Well, I, uh, she refused. Oh, take no notice. The old dragon made her write that. You mean she'll come after all? Name the place. Yes, well, uh, d d d does she know the Candlelight Club? No, but I do. Well, good, then uh, I'll be there in an hour, say? An hour. Uh, look here. I hope I'm doing the right thing. Myra's the finest girl in the world. You can see that, can't you? I can see that, Kitty. Bye-bye, Captain. Hello, Captain. Hello. I'm delighted you're here. I'm afraid I made it difficult for you with Madame Corova, haven't I? Well, you... you gave up the colonel... So I expect I made it difficult for you, too. Yes, you did. But I have my reward. It was wonderful of you to come. And how nice you look. Oh, thank you. And you look pretty, too. Thank you. <laughs> Say, uh, by the way, what do dancers eat? Oh, dull things, mostly. Nutritious, yet non-fattening. Oh, no, not tonight. Supper for a queen and champagne. Oh, it isn't against the rules for a dancer to drink a bit of champagne, is it? Well, tonight... Good. It's icing in the bucket. Tell me, are you glad to see me again? Yes. I sense a reservation. Well, I suppose there is one. What? Why? Uh, what's the good of it? You're a strange girl, aren't you? What's the good of anything? What's the good of living? That's the question, too. Oh, now, wait a minute. I'm not going to let you get away with that. The wonderful thing about living is that this sort of thing can happen. In the shadow of a death raid, I can meet you and feel more intensely alive than walking around in peacetime taking my life for granted. Oh, it's a high price to pay for it. I don't think so. I do. Do people have to kill each other to, to give them a heightened sense of life? But that's got nothing to do with people killing each other. Either you're excited about life or you're not. You know, I've never been able to wait for the future. When I was very young, I climbed to the top branch of a high tree, stood like a diver and announced to my horrified governess, now I shall leap into the future, and spent three months in the hospital. <laughs> <laughs> you should let the future catch up with you more slowly. Oh, no, no, never. Temperament, I, I can't help it. Look here, if we'd met in ordinary times, in an ordinary way, we'd just about be telling each other what schools we went to. We're much further along, don't you think? Are we? You know we are. Let's open the champagne. To you. Thank you. To us. I... I still don't get it. Not quite. What? Your face. It's all youth. All beauty. Oh, but what is it you still don't get? You, you know, when I left you after the air raid, I, I couldn't remember what you looked like. Not for the life of me. I, I thought, was she pretty? Was she ugly? What was she like? I couldn't remember. I simply had to get to the theater tonight to see what you looked like. And do you think you remember me now? I think so. I think so for the rest of my life. <laughs> All right. 
write to you? Will you answer? Of course. Wonderful evening, wasn't it? Yes. Thank you very much. When I come back, we'll, uh, we'll go to the Candlelight Club again. Yes. That'll be our place. That's where we'll always recapture this evening. Do you think we'll ever see each other again? I think it's doubtful, don't you? Yes, I suppose it is. What was it you started to tell me in the restroom? That you didn't understand about me? Uh, there's no use going into it now. No, but tell me, please. I'd like to know. Well, it... It struck me as curious ever since I met you. You know, from that very early moment ages ago that you're so young, so lovely, and so defeatist. I mean, you... You just don't seem to expect much from life. Well, aren't I right? For instance, I met you, I liked you, and now, so soon, we have to part, and perhaps we'll never see each other again. You can conceive that, then, our never seeing each other again. Yes, I can. This where you live? Yes. Well, nothing to do about it, is there? Mm, nothing. Except... Except to say goodbye. I suppose so. Goodbye. Goodbye, Myra, dear. Goodbye, Roy. Oh, darling, darling. Oh, no, no, no. No, Roy. It, it can't happen. Keep well. Nothing can happen to me. You, your lucky charm will see to that. Oh, I hope it will. I pray it will. Goodbye. Goodbye. Please leave me first. All right. All right. <laughs> Captain... Oh, it's half past eleven. Oh, come in. Good morning. Good morning, Good morning madame. madame. I came to congratulate you, Mara. On what, madame? On being up. Considering that you did not go to bed until four, it's remarkable. I have a feeling your performance tonight will give the effect of sleepwalking. Well, it's the first time Mara's been out, madame. Mara, when I made you send the note to the gentleman last night... It was you I was trying to protect. Yes, I know. I am fond of my girls who work for me. I do not want them to be uh, uh, camp followers. Oh, you don't know him or you wouldn't say that. Well, can't we have any private lives at all? Not when it hurts your public life in the theater. Myra, I'm happy he did not stay here a week. Otherwise, he would have ruined six performances instead of one. He's a wonderful man, madame. That is unimportant. If such a thing should happen again with you... Or any of the others. It means instant dismissal. I will see you at the theater tonight, if it is not too much trouble. Oh. Why is she so cruel and hateful? Oh, the old broomstick. Ah, never mind her. She spoils everything. Oh, rubbish. You're just upset and tired. Why don't you go back to bed? There's no rehearsal today. And 
Now come away from that window. No, I'm not tired. What a horrible morning for the channel crossing. Well, I suppose he's gone now. Mm, I suppose so. Kitty. What? Kitty! He's downstairs. Oh, pacing back and forth. Oh, I don't believe it. Oh, good heavens. Why, he's deserted. Kitty, he's here. He hasn't gone. He's here. She'll be court-martialed for this. Oh, Kitty. Oh, you see him too, don't you? Well, if that's his ghost, I could use one like him. Uh, now get away from that window, you stupid ninny. He'll see you. I can't help it. Out of my way. Oh, I've got to go. Where's my hat? Oh, oh why wasn't I dressed? Oh. Where is my hat? This is your hat. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> I, I, I can't wear my handbag on my head. Not very well. Kitty, is he still there? Oh. Is he gone? Will he wait? Do, do I look all right? Yes. Yes, you look all right. You look better with the dress on. Oh, oh dress, dress. Dress, where is it? The thing I'm holding is the dress. <laughs> yes, yes, of course. How silly of me. Help me. Mm. Hurry, a, a little lower. Oh, Mark, will you stop oh, it? Oh, Hippie. Oh, goodness, I don't know what I'm doing. Say I you must don't. Him. Oh, dear, these stupid... Oh, here, let me help you. Kitty, stop Oh, I wonder around. if he's gone. Kitty, Kitty, he's gone. He's, he's gone. Then that thing by the tree must be a mirage. He's back. He's back. Oh, I'm so glad. I'm so glad. I'm going. Oh, wait a minute. I'm going down the stairs first. You don't want to run into Madame on the way down. And for pity's sake, please tell him no more false alarms. I can't stand the excitement. <laughs> Darling, 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 darling. Oh, oh Roy. Oh, nice of you to come and see me. Don't talk. Just let me kiss you. Oh, you, you didn't go? Couldn't. Mine's in the channel. 48 hours leave. Oh, isn't that wonderful? Oh, darling, darling, darling. Let me hold you in my arms. Oh, but, but we're right out in the street. Everybody understands. Oh, 48 hours. Two whole days. Oh. You know, I thought about you all last night. I couldn't sleep oh. a wink. Oh, you managed to remember me at last, then? Yes, barely managed. <laughs> Myra, what do you think we're going to do today? Well, I... You, you won't have time for that. What? For hesitating. No more hesitating for you. No? No. Well, what am I going to do instead? Then? You're going to get married. Oh, Roy. Roy, you must be mad. I know it. It's a marvelous oh, sensation. Oh, do be sensible. Not me. Oh, but you don't know me. Then I'll discover you. Spend the rest of my life doing it. Oh, Roy, this is wartime. It's... It's because you're leaving so soon. Because you because you feel that you must spend the whole of your life in 48 hours. We're going to be married. It's you. It'll never be anyone else. But how can you tell that? Now, listen, darling. None of your quibbling, none of your questioning, none of your doubts. This is positive, you see? Roy. This is affirmative, you see? This is final, you see? You're going to marry me, you see? <laughs> I see. Oh, kiss me, you... <laughs> Forever. Come on, hurry. Cab! Come in, please, Captain. Oh, uh, this is Miss Lester, Vicar. How do you do, Miss Lester? How do you do? I'm sorry to disappoint you, Miss Lester, but I'm afraid it's impossible for me to marry you now. Oh. No doubt you forget that according to the law, no marriages can take place after three o'clock. I explained to the Vicar, Myra, that this is an emergency, that we thought during wartime something could be managed. Oh, isn't there something we can do, sir? 
We'd be most awfully grateful. Oh, I'd like to help you, but unfortunately, that is the law. However, if you'll come tomorrow at 11 o'clock, I shall be most happy to perform the ceremony for you. But we have so little time. Well, it's... It's only a few hours. It just means we'll... We have to be engaged for a whole day. <laughs> yes, darling, but I never did believe in long engagements. <laughs> Where is Myra? It's almost eight. If she isn't just in time for the performance, Madame will give her the sack. Oh, I tell you, I just tremble for that poor girl. Oh, you're always trembling, Maureen. Hello, Kitty. Well, where have you been? I've been worried to death. I thought you were with a boyfriend, but he phoned a couple of times. Oh, did he? Mm. I wonder why. He had to go back to the barracks, and I went shopping. Here. What's in those packages? Open them up. Myra. Whose dress is that? It's mine. Yours? Yes. I spent my last penny on it. Are you crazy? (laughs) Oh, quite, quite. And I bought a hat. A lovely hat and the shoes and a bag and then gloves. Oh, isn't it a dream, Kitty? It's my wedding dress. Myra. Oh, you don't mean yes. Yes, I'm going to be married. Oh, darling, darling, come here and let me hold Oh, isn't it wonderful? Oh. Well, tell me where, when, how quick. Oh, tomorrow, tomorrow morning. Tomorrow morning oh. it's in Matthew's church. Oh, Kitty, I'm so madly in love. So madly happy. Oh, darling, I, I can't believe this. <laughs> Neither can I. Silly, but I'm crying. I've been, I've been crying all day. Oh, it's unbelievable. <laughs> Things like this just don't happen. Oh, it's wonderful. Oh, what a joke on Madame. I'll get it. Hello? Miss Lester? One moment, please. A gentleman, Myra. That must be Roy. Hello? Hello, darling. Yes, what? Oh, no. When? Oh, that's terrible. Can't they give you one more day? You have to? Oh, of course I'll come at once. I love you. What is it? What happened? The orders have been changed. He's going tonight. The train leaves in ten minutes. Where are you going? I'm going to see him off. Going where? Oh, to, to Waterloo Station. But you can't. You won't be back in time for the show. My will be over. Oh, I don't care. Oh, Myra, please. She'll never forgive you. Never. I may never see him again. Darling, what's wrong? He's gone. You talked to him? No, Kitty, I was too late. Didn't you see him at all? Oh, just a glimpse. Oh, what a shame. I knew it would happen. I knew it from the start. Oh, he'll be back. (laughs) The war can't last forever. No. He won't be back. Good evening, Myra. It is very condescending of you to come here at all. She's very unhappy, madame. Her fiancé was called to the front. I'm not interested in tube movements. She was to be married in the morning. Nor in social events. Well, the whole world doesn't begin and end with a ballet. My word does. And while you are with me, so must yours. 
That prescription no longer applies to Myra. Oh, don't sack her, madame. I warned you, Myra. You are dismissed. I've never heard of anything so unreasonable. Be I... careful. No, I won't be careful. Oh, don't, Kitty, don't. Don't you worry, Myra. I'm fed up with her. I've been wanting to tell her for two years. And now I'm going to tell you, madame. And if you don't like it, you can lump it. I'm sick of you and your tyranny. You treat us like a lot of slaves and call it discipline. Oh, it, it isn't that. It's, well, it's just that you enjoy bullying us. Maureen. Yes, madame. Rehearsal tomorrow at 11 with two understudies. Yes, madame. Good night. Kitty. Kitty, you shouldn't have. You shouldn't have. It's, oh, it's all my fault. Oh, forget it. I'm sick of ballet. I'm sick of being highbrow with my feet. You and I, Ducky, are going to get into a review. All we got to do is get some manager to put one on. <laughs> that ought to be simple. Kitty. Yes? Do you think... Occasionally. What? Do you think he'll write? Honey, answer one question for me. Yes. Does a monkey eat bananas? Second act of Waterloo Bridge, starring Miss Norma Shearer, will continue in just a moment after a brief pause for station identification. This is the Screen Director's Playhouse, brought to you by Extra Mild Fatima, best of all king-size cigarettes. In Fatima, the difference is quality. By RCA Victor, world leader in radio, first in recorded music, first in television. And by the makers of Anison, for fast relief from the pain of headache, neuritis, and neuralgia. Now, here's Jack Webb, the star of Dragnet. If you smoke king-size cigarettes, listen to Fatima's amazing new offer... Buy a pack of Fatimas, enjoy their extra mildness, and see if you don't like Fatimas better than the king-size cigarettes you're now smoking. If you don't, return the pack with the unused Fatimas, and we'll give you your money back, plus postage. Now, we make this offer because we believe Fatima is the best of all king-size cigarettes. Smokers all over the country are confirming this every day. Listen to this state-by-state -state report. State 1, Fatima sales up 92%. 2, sales up 72%. Three, sales up 107%. Four, Fatima sales up 192%. Remember, if you're not convinced they're better than your present king-size cigarette, return the pack and the unsmoked Fatimas before December 1st and get your money back, plus postage. That's Fatima, Box 37, New York 1. Buy Fatima today. And now we continue transcribed with the second act of Waterloo Bridge, starring Miss Norma Shearer in the role of Myra, with Carlton Young as Roy. History tells that the condition of the world, and particularly London, in 1917 was perilous. Chaos and disorder replaced normalcy. 
Jobs were at a premium, money was scarce, and show business was at a standstill. People like Mara and Kitty were faced with a desperate situation. How to survive in their third-rate hotel room. Hello. Well, Mara, I didn't get the job. Oh, Kitty. How about you? Oh, no luck. We're a couple of howling successes. Sitting right on top of the world, aren't we? Well, you're in a nice mood, aren't you? And no wonder, sitting here in the dark, feeling sorry for yourself. Well, if I don't feel sorry for myself, who will? Trouble with you is you're hungry. You'll feel better when you have something to eat. Myra. Yes, Kitty? You're probably sick of hearing this. But honestly, why don't you let Roy know? That we're out of work? That we're broke, flat broke, down to our last bullion cube. Oh, he'd worry. I I don't want him to worry. Better for him to worry than for us to starve. Oh, Kitty, we're not starving. Nobody starves. You mean people who starve don't live to tell about it. I don't know what we're going to do. We can't get jobs in the show. We can't get them anywhere else. Oh, if Madame were still here, I'd, I'd go to her, pride or no pride. As it is, there's nobody. Mara, I'm frightened. I've never been frightened before. Oh, Kitty. I don't like it. Kitty. Oh, perhaps it's selfish of me not to let Roy know, but... Oh, I've got a stupid sort of pride about it. Just let me wait a little while. Just just a little while longer. Something must turn up. And if... Well, if it doesn't... Well, it's Mrs. Clark for the rent. Oh, now remember, you were rehearsing. Oh, yes. Yes, that's right. Miss Lester. For you, Mara. Oh, thank you. Seems like them as gets flowers could pay their rent. Flowers? Here, here, let's see them. Put them on imagine. Oh, oh, are they lovely. Now, who do you suppose? Kitty. Oh, it's Roy. It's Roy and his handwriting. Or two dozen. Oh, they're beautiful. Oh, they're so lovely. Oh, just look at them. Oh, enough to buy food for a whole week. Oh, listen to what he wrote on the card. What... One of my men got leave, and you, you'll be receiving these through him. And with them, I send you all my love. We, uh, oh. uh, we, we could sell them to the florist at the corner, buy ourselves a real meal. Yeah, but I don't think you'd favor the idea. No. Oh, Kitty. His mother's coming here. To London? Yes, yes, listen. My mother is snatching a few days from her Red Cross work and is coming to town to specially see you. I know you'll get on well with her. She's very nice. In fact... That she's quite like me. Oh, Kitty, what'll I do? I can't have her here in this hovel. Why not? Let's give her a little party and boil the bouillon cubes. Well, I can suggest meeting her somewhere. For tea, perhaps. Oh, but Kitty, imagine his, his mother. Oh, I'm awfully nervous at meeting her. I wonder... What, you funny love-struck infant? Oh, I wonder if she'll like me. Well, she'd better. We won't invite her at all. Myra. I... Darling, you're trembling. Oh, Kitty, don't you see that, well, meeting her will be like, like seeing Roy again. Oh. oh, you've been such a darling to me. And now perhaps I'll be able to repay you. You know, I, oh, I have the feeling that from now on everything's going to take a turn for the better. I'm just sure it is. to order. Not yet, thank you. I'll wait for my friend. She's Lady Margaret Cronin, and I'm Miss Lester. 
If she should ask for me, will you direct her to me here? Certainly. What time is it, please? It's uh, ten minutes to five. Thank you. Would you care to look at the evening paper? No, thanks. Well, in that case... One, one moment. What does that headline say? Uh, latest war casualties. Would you like to read them? No, no. Oh, yes. Well, here you are, miss. Killed in action. Fallen officers. Ashley, Abernathy, Barbara, Byrne, Blair, Ball, Busey, Brothers, Vinnie, Cronin. Cronin. Oh, Captain Roy Cronin. No. Oh, God, no. down a bit. No. No, I, I, I'd rather stay here. Take another sip of the brandy. It'll help. Thank you. <laughs> Better? <laughs> yes. Sure. Uh, I'll be all right. Now sit quiet and rest. If your friend doesn't turn up, we'll call a text. Uh, Blair, a ball, beauty, brother, bidding, crawling. I beg your pardon. Crawling! Are you Miss Lester? Uh, yes. I'm Margaret Cronin. Roy's mother. Uh, may I sit down? Yes, yes, of course. I'm afraid I've kept you waiting. I'm terribly sorry. Now, what do we have? Tea and some little cake? Uh, no, 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 thank you. I, I can't stay very long. Oh, I do hope you're not going to run off at once. Incidentally, I telephoned you from Scotland to the hotel where Roy told me you were staying, but they said you'd gone away. I, I have my mail forwarded. There, there are reasons. Oh, my dear, I didn't mean to pry. Forgive me, my dear, but you're not afraid of me, are you? I know we're going to be friends. I feel that I know you already through Roy's letters. And I want to write him and tell him that you and I have met and that we like each other very much. May I write him that? Yes, yes, of course. I suppose there are lots of things you want to know about Roy that I could tell you. And I'm sure there are things about him you could tell me. Oh, stop it. Oh, 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 I'm, I'm sorry. That's quite all right, my dear. Well, well, why don't they bring your tea? They're, they're, they're very slow, aren't they? Shall I call the waitress? No, no, don't bother. I'm in no hurry. Would you rather that I didn't speak about Roy? Oh, no, no. Why should you think that? But... But what is there to say? Forgive me, my dear. Have you been drinking? Oh, I... I had a drink, that's all. It made me feel funny, sort of queer. Oh, uh, what's it like in Scotland? I, I've never been there. It always sounds so quaint, you know. The heather and the peat. Oh, but peat, peat comes from Ireland, doesn't it? I've, I've never been there. Why do you stare at me like that? I'm trying to see you as Roy sees you. Myra, I want you to remember that I tried to be your friend. I've come because Roy wanted me to come. Because I wish to. Perhaps we'll try again someday. Perhaps on Roy's next leave, he'll bring you to the country. Goodbye, Myra. Oh! <laughs> 
you. For the next three months, the physical condition of Mara fitted in with the hysteria of the world. A complete nervous breakdown accompanied by the dread influenza. As she slowly recovered, doubt assailed her as to how the room rent was paid, where the money for food came from, the doctor's bills, and medicine. Hello, Kitty. Get those wet things off. Double quick time, too. Well, I fix your hot water bottle. Kitty. Oh, why did you go out? Kitty. Yes? How did the show go tonight? Oh, same as usual. Hmm. Was it a good house? So-so. Why? I went to the theater. Thought I'd surprise you by calling for you. Huh? Oh, well, um... You see, Myra, I didn't want to worry you. You see, I'm in a... Well, a different sort of show than the one I said I was in. Yes? A, a cheaper sort of show, so I... Kitty, you haven't got a job at all. You never did have one. How have we been living? What difference does it make? As long as we live. Where's the money coming from? Where are you getting it? Where do you think I've been getting it? Oh, I tried to keep it from you, but... Well, now you know. Oh. You did it for me. Oh, no, I did not have done it anyhow. I... Sailor Gare. No jobs. No boys who want to marry you. Only men who want to kill a few hours. Because... Because they know it may be their last. No. You did it for me to get me food and medicine. <laughs> oh, I'd sooner have died. No, you wouldn't. You think you would, but you wouldn't. I thought of that, but I wasn't brave enough. I wanted to go on living. Heaven knows why. But I did, and so would you. Oh, we're young, and it's... It's good to live. Even the life I'm leading. For God knows it. I've heard them call it the easiest way. Wonder whoever thought up that little phrase. I know one thing. It couldn't have been a woman. Kitty. Oh, darling, darling. Suppose you think I'm dirt. Oh, no, no, Kitty. I, I guess it was just... Just no other way. No other way. Here's a word from RCA Victor. Have you ever looked in the back of your television set? If you have, you've probably noticed a complicated arrangement of tubes, wires, and parts which help produce the picture on the screen of your picture tube. But when you think about it, the picture is only as good as the picture tube itself. That's why your picture tube is really the heart of your television set. And that's why it pays to insist on the best tube available, an RCA tube, when your present picture tube wears out. You see... 
Every RCA picture tube is manufactured with precise quality controls at every stage of production, assuring you a clearer, brighter, sharper picture for a longer period of time. And now every RCA renewal picture tube carries a factory warranty that guarantees you against any defect in workmanship or material for six months from the date of installation. So regardless of the make of your set, ask your local repairman to install a genuine RCA picture tube. Then you're sure of enjoying the very best that your television set has to offer. Now the third act of Waterloo Bridge, starring Miss Norma Shearer. Hello, baby. Hello. Care for a bit of a stroll, huh? <laughs> What are we waiting for, dearie? Hello, Martha. How's luck? Well, I'm not exactly prepared to retire yet. Grandpa's in at Waterloo at four. Hope some of them soldiers are still on their feet, eh, Martha? <laughs> Hope so, Clarky. Cheerio. Cheerio. See around wherever I go. Care for a bit of a stroll, huh? Myra! Roy! Oh, the, the buns I've waited for this moment. Oh, darling. Roy! Oh, Roy! It's over, darling. It's all over. This time we're together for always. Roy, you're... Feeling better, darling. Roy, you're... you're alive. Of course I'm alive. Didn't you know I was indestructible? How could I die when we were engaged? Oh, but the papers... Were wrong. I was in a German prison for the better part of a year and then escaped. I came home to you. Uh, did my mother get in touch with you, tell you to meet me at the train? No. Well, then you didn't know I was coming? No. Then what were you doing at the station? Were you looking for a friend? Yes, uh... Uh, a girlfriend. I got a thousand questions. What have you been up to? Have you got a job? Where is it? What does it pay? I... I... I don't have a job. Oh, it doesn't matter. I'm not going to let you out of my sight this time. Not till we're married. You understand that? Oh, darling, you... You've been through a lot, haven't you? It's been, uh... It's been... Pretty tough, huh? And I wasn't there to help you. But that's all over now. I never want to see you cry again except with happiness. Oh, if only I had known you were alive. That you were in the world. I'll never leave you again, darling. You're coming home with me to my mother's in Scotland. We're leaving right away just as soon as I arrange the tickets. Uh, I, I can't go with you. It's, it's out of the question. Why? Please don't ask me, but I... I simply can't. But I've got to ask you, and you've got to tell me. Why, well, I... I look terrible for one thing. I, I, I haven't got any clothes. Well, Madame Conan to be, we'll see what we can do. How would you like to be the most smartly dressed woman in London? Uh, no, Roy, I, I can't. 
There's someone else, isn't there, Myra? After all, you thought me dead. There is someone else, isn't there? Don't be afraid. Tell me. Oh, Roy. Of course there isn't anybody else. There couldn't be. I loved you. I've never loved anyone else. I never shall. That's the truth, Roy. That's all I wanted to know. Darling, smile for a change. <laughs> I'll... I'll try. Have you forgotten how? Come on. Oh, that's a good girl. <laughs> oh, darling. I... I can't believe that I... that I'm with you again. But you are. Happy? Oh, oh yes. Personally, I'm delirious. Come on, we're going shopping. <laughs> What's this all about? What are all these packages? Have you taken to shoplifting? Oh, Kitty, darling. Roy's back. He's alive. Roy? Kitty. Kitty wants to marry me. Oh, no. Such things don't happen. It's true. Oh, Kitty, it's going to be so wonderful. And for you, too. Oh, nothing will be too good for you when I'm Roy's wife. Oh, I know what you're thinking. Uh, I've been thinking, too. You you think that'll be dreadful of me, don't you? Does he know? No. Well, do you think you can get away with it? Uh, you mean deceiving him? Yes. Uh, oh, I, I, I'm going to tell him. There are two sorts of people, Myra. Those who get the breaks and those who don't. Well, I'm getting the breaks now. And I'm not going to think. You remember? You once said that you wanted to live. Oh, well, I want to live. This is my chance for life. And I won't let him go. I guess there are no rules, Myra, for what you feel and what he feels. Kitty. Oh, Kitty. After all, if he's mad enough about you, may make up for everything. Oh, it must. It must. He's so kind, Kitty. So sweet and so clean and wonderful. I'll devote myself to him. After all, it's his happiness too, Kitty. He he loves me. He's waited for me and my... And, and in my soul, in my soul, I've waited for him. That's what really counts, isn't it? The, 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 just the soul? Yes. Yes, Myra, that's all that counts. Oh, Roy. Oh, it's beautiful. This has been our home for generations. We're awfully good together, don't you think? RSVP, that was a question that requires an answer. Yes or no? Uh, yes. Your answer's correct. <laughs> now off to bed with you, darling. Big day ahead tomorrow. Good night, darling. Good night, my love. Mara, forgive me for waiting for you in your room. Oh, that's quite all right, Lady Margaret. I couldn't go to sleep without getting something off my chest. It's about our last meeting in London. You know, that has preyed on my mind ever since. Myra, do you bear a grudge against me? Oh, no, Lady Margaret. Frankly, I came with a prejudice. And when I saw you, you seemed strange to me. I thought you couldn't be... Well, 
that's what I wanted Roy's wife to be. I've no excuse except the mother's excuse for wanting an impossible idea for her son. Can you forgive me? No, but there's nothing to forgive. When I got home the next day, I found the telegram telling me the dreadful news about Roy. And when I could think again, it suddenly struck me that you'd known all the time. That you'd just seen his name in the newspaper and you hardly knew what you were saying. Is that true? Yes. Oh, you poor child. If I'd only known. I did my best to find you, but you disappeared. And now I want to make it up to you in the future. I'm very happy about this marriage, Myra. And I know we're going to be wonderful friends. <laughs> Forgive me for being sentimental. Good night, my daughter. Don't go, Lady Margaret. I must speak to you. Why, of course, my dear. I can't marry Roy. Sit down quietly, dear, and tell me. I must go away. I, uh, I never should have come here. I knew it was impossible, but I, I kept on deceiving myself. I've got to go away. I, I must never see him again. Well, perhaps if you'd hated me, if you'd fought me, I, I could have done it, but... Well, you've all been so kind. My dear, why don't you tell me what it is? I'm sure I can help you. No, no one can help me. But, my dear, what can it be that's so terrible? Has there been someone else? <laughs> Lady Margaret, you're naive. My dear, Roy loves you. He's happy with you. That's enough for me. If there are indiscretions in your life, forget them. Face the future. <sighs> There's no future for me. Myra, look at me. Look at me. Can't you see? Can't you see the truth? Don't make me tell you. Myra. Yes. This thought in your mind, which you're telling yourself, can't be true. It is true. Myra. Oh, I can give you plenty of excuses. I was poor, I was hungry, I thought Roy was, was dead. I might make you understand, but it couldn't save me. I'll never see him again. But I, well, I just can't tell him the truth myself. I can't hurt him like that. Promise me you'll never tell him. Promise me. I promise. Thank you. I'll leave early in the morning. You've been so kind. I wish I could have been, oh, well, all that you'd hoped. Myra. Roy. What are you doing prowling around at this hour? You been with Mother? Yes. Isn't she wonderful? Oh, yes, she is. I knew I wouldn't sleep, so I've been walking in the garden. Confiding my good luck to the stars. Oh, were they pleased? Well, they seemed indifferent. They went on glittering, the little exhibitions. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, you ever see this good luck charm before? Oh, I think so. Oh, here. But I... I gave it to you. It's yours. I think it'll be safer with you. Just as I'll be. I dropped it in the garden a moment ago, and I was frantic until I found it again. I think you'd better have it from now on, because now that we're both, as they say, one... It really doesn't matter which one of us keeps it, does it? Brought me luck. I'll let it bring you luck. I'll keep it for you, Roy. Oh, I'm tired, darling. Yes, you look tired. 
It's been a strenuous day for you. Yes. Good night, darling. Goodbye, darling. Oh, why goodbye when it's only till morning? Oh, because... Because every parting from you is... Well, a little eternity. That's the way I feel, too. Goodbye. Goodbye, little sentimentalist. Tomorrow, all day to ourselves. Yes, my love. Well, now is it, you Margaret? What? Oh, hello, Clarky. What you do with the Waterloo Bridge? Heard you was married, Ducky. No. No, I'm not married. That kitty, she told me. Said you'd got off with some tough. I knew it was too good to be true. Yes, just too good to be true. Oh, well, cheer up. Things can't get worse. Coming down to the station, dearie, true friends do, I hear. No, I... No. Oh, well. Clarky, do me a favor. Would you see that this good luck charm is delivered to this address? Sure, Ducky. Hello, baby. Care for a bit of a... Well, I ain't seen you for a long time. No. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. No. Hey, baby, baby, come in. Oh, no. The Likewise, those we truly love are never forgotten. And while the years tend to cover all wounds, the scars remain, though invisible. And the heart remembers. As he stood at the parapet of Waterloo Bridge in the year of 1939, tenderly holding a very small charm in the palm of his hand, Colonel Roy Cronin lifted it to his lips. And with this gesture, all else, all the world except one voice was silent. And this voice he heard with exquisite clarity. I loved you. I've never loved anyone else. I never shall. That's the truth, Roy. I never shall. for a magnificent performance. And that was Waterloo Bridge from the Screen Director's Playhouse starring Norma Shearer. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Remember, if you'd like bonus content, then go on over to patreon.com slash attaboysecret and sign up there to get bonus shows, ebooks, commentaries, all sorts of things. The new ebook has just gone up, actually, and it's very unorthodox. Listen on for more details on how to sign up. For now, though, thank you for being here. I'll be back soon with another show, but until then, take awfully good care of yourselves. And bye for now. If you'd like to support this show, you can do so by going to www.attaboyclarence.com and clicking on the Patreon banner. 
Pledges start from as little as $1 a month. And in return, you'll receive exclusive emails, bonus episodes, previews, and ebooks. And every dollar pledged goes towards making these shows better and more frequent. Go to www.attaboyclarence.com or click the link in the show notes now to become a patron. Thank you. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.